This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey, movie addicts, welcome to Cinema Fix, your stop for the purest, highest quality movie reviews on the block. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined today by my fellow dealer, Monica Castillo. Hello, Andrew. Hey, Monica! Oh my god, you are so excited right now. 2013 has come to a close. It's over. It's over. It's been over for a few weeks. <laughs> we're late. <laughs> we're a little bit late. Uh, <laughs> but that's okay, because we're in the middle of awards season. Uh, so what better time than now to have our 2013 wrap-up episode? Uh, this is episode number 78 of Cinema Fix, and we're going to be focusing on the best and worst movies of last year. If you're new to the show, basically this is the program on Film Geek Radio focused on in-depth discussion of mainstream blockbuster films. But we are doing things a little bit different today. Normally, we discuss whatever big release uh, is coming out a particular week, but today... We're, we're kind of having our Cinema Fix Awards show. We, we've done one of these before. I believe it was episode number 33 of the program. And basically, this is the episode where we look back uh, at the past year and we talk about all the movies, both big and small, that left the greatest uh, impression on us. And uh, here's how it's going to work. Uh, this is probably going to be a pretty long recording because we want to be sure to offer you more than just a top 10 list. Everyone does the top 10 list. And you can't go to any movie site nowadays without seeing, without seeing top 10 movies of last year, or top 20, or top 50, or whatever. Uh, but there weren't just 10 good movies last year, as I'm sure uh, you would agree, Monica. There were a lot more than t- 10 great movies. Uh, 2013 was a pretty fantastic year for cinema, and we want to make sure to recognize movies that might not be getting a, a lot of widespread acclaim uh, at this point in time. So here's how it's going to work. Uh, first, in part one, Monica, you and I are going to count down our top ten films of 2013, and we're going to briefly discuss them, along with some honorable mentions. Uh, and then in part two, we're going to examine a few specific genres, like best action film, best comedy, best documentary, best foreign film. Uh, we're going to talk about the worst movies that we saw last year, and we're going to talk about movies that really surprised and disappointed us, uh, and a few other things as well. So we've got a lot in store for you. Uh, let's go ahead and get started. Alrighty. Monica, I am going to start with you. Before we get into your top 10, what are just a couple honorable mentions that almost made your top 10, but didn't quite make the cut that you still think people should check out? I had a real, I mean, 2013 was such a great year. found almost something in every genre to fall in love with. So one of a few of the movies that ended up outside of my top 10 list would include uh, Stories We Tell, The Great Beauty, which is an Italian movie, and I really suggest people uh, look that up, uh, Before Midnight, the Richard Linklater film, Museum Hours, which is also a foreign film. It's gorgeous, and I really I really want to push people to that. Um, it was on a really limited release, and I happened to catch it at a film festival. Uh, the documentary 20 Feet from Stardom, and I also want to throw out the name No from Pablo Lorraine. I haven't seen some of those films, Monica. I, I haven't caught up with Definitely Museum worth, Hours right? yet, 20 Feet from Stardom, or The Great Beauty. I'm hoping to get to those over the next couple weeks. No is a really fantastic movie. Um, I would encourage everyone to go 
check it out. Uh, technically, I think it was released in 2012. Yeah, it was Chile's 2012 entry to the Oscars last year, but didn't get a formal release until March of this year in the United States. Right, right. Uh, absolutely wonderful movie about uh, an advertising agency's efforts to, to produce a, a political ad campaign um, to encourage people to overthrow the oppressive government in, uh, in Chile. Wonderful movie. There are a couple movies I would like to mention as well. I've submitted a, a couple top ten lists, uh, Monica. I'm sure you have as well. Mm-hmm. I contributed to, to IndieWire's list. I contributed to Movie Mezzanine's list. 2013 was such a great year for movies. I feel like none of my lists are the same. Oh, you're that guy. <laughs> because I, I every time I'll look at my list and then I'll like switch some things around or put in something else and, and, and send that. So I feel like most of the stuff on my list is pretty interchangeable this year, which is, which is pretty fantastic. I want to give a big shout out to The Purge, which, Monica, you know I liked this film. A little too much. I, I'm not going to say it's like the best horror film of the past five years or anything, because it's definitely not. <laughs> it is just, I, I think it's a really, really underrated film that more people need to see. I think it. I, I think the director's got some really interesting things he's trying to explore about violence in culture and society. Uh, Mud, another great movie uh, that I've seen two or three times. It's a coming-of-age story starring Matthew McConaughey. And it's absolutely a fantastic film. Upstream Color, Shane Carruth's film, uh, did not make my top ten, but it was very, very close. This is one of the most creative and innovative films I've ever seen. I'm excited that people like Shane Carruth are out there trying to find new ways to tell stories and explore new forms of cinematic language. Uh, you interviewed I Shane did. Carruth, actually. It's great. Um, and he talked about how meticulously he chose the colors in his scene, everything from people's outfits to on the walls. I mean, just so much detail went into it to make make the colors naturally come out. And then it sort of reflected the state of mind of the main characters. Keep an eye out for that if you haven't already seen it. Yeah, it's a great film, and people can listen to that interview on our Let's Get Real podcast. Uh, and the uh, the last film I want to mention uh, real quick is The Wolf of Wall Street, which did not make my top ten, but keeps growing in my mind the more I think about it, uh, the, the, the more I appreciate it. And it's just, it's one of the most radical pieces of mainstream filmmaking of the past couple years. It's absolutely astounding. Um, I, I think there's a ton of stuff to talk about. Monica, you and I talked about it a little bit on our winter wrap-up edition uh, but yeah, The Wolf of Wall Street, absolutely great movie. Didn't quite make the cut for my top 10. All right, Monica, what is your number 10 film of 2013? It's actually the movie we were just raving about. It's Upstream Color. Um, it's not that narrative. It's very challenging, but I love the hell out of this movie, and I've probably seen it uh, two or three times. I could probably just get lost in this film. I've interpreted it as a sort of open-ended story of trauma and cyclical patterns in both nature and relationships. And then on top of all that, it's a visual feast of just light shades of yellow and blues and mixing them together, uh, messing with the saturation here and there. It's just, it's such, it's not only just a pretty picture, there's something behind that there. 
So, yes, I'm really a big fan of Shane Carruth from this film and pr- his previous one in Primer. He's got a really distinct style. Yeah, this is a movie, I, I think you can you can take a lot of stuff from it. Uh, I've only seen it once, unfortunately, but I I was really drawn to just how it depicts that conflict between individual desires and external pressures. That, that, that whole idea of maybe there's certain things you want or you're attracted to and you're not quite sure if that's due to you or if it's due to your past or other institutional or cultural forces that may be influencing you. Um, and I thought it was a really great movie. I don't even know how to pitch this movie to people. Yeah, Monica, it's it's. So <laughs> I, weird. I struggle with just giving it up a synopsis. Like, what's it about? Oh, <laughs> it's a lot of things. <laughs> it's about like a disease and like uh, there's worms, there's pigs, there's pigs, and uh, there's poop. People, orchids. There's orchids. Orchids, yes. Very. And don't forget the orchids. poop. Lots of poop. I think that's what stuck with you, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> such a weird but but beautiful movie. I was gonna say real quick. I don't think you get to complain about the poop if you haven't seen Ming's uh, Stray Dogs. I believe it is. It was a New York Film Festival, but that you actually see uh, people taking piss and a shit. So I have not seen that, but you've totally sold me, Monica. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's more than once too. <laughs> I'm not quite sure that's a recommendation. Uh, <laughs> my number 10 film is uh, the second feature, I believe it's the second feature film, directed by uh, J.C. Chander. It's a movie called All Is Lost, starring Robert Redford as a man adrift on the ocean after his yacht hits a shipping container, and he's just stuck out in the middle of nowhere trying to survive. And this is why you use the buddy system. Yes, really. You should not go out in the ocean alone. It's just not smart. Uh, what, what I love about this movie is how simple it is and yet also complex when you start to think about how it subverts the audience's expectations. Because we've seen survival movies before. We've seen Castaway. You know, we've seen movies about people trapped on desert islands trying to survive. I mean, Robinson Crusoe is like one of the first major ones, and that was a book. Right. The thing about All is Lost is that it basically takes all your expectations and what you're used to seeing in a, in a movie like this. Uh, everything that I think the audience is expecting the director to give them to make them feel better to a certain extent is just tossed out the window. There's hardly any dialogue it is literally just robert redford there's no volleyball no wilson no wilson very little music and very bleak a lot of the time and i i'm just i'm stunned that this movie was made the way it was made i can't believe there wasn't some studio exec sitting there going, no, no, you have to include this or you have to include that because if you don't, the audience won't like it and we want them to like it. it. It's just a really, really beautifully shot, incredibly acted film, uh, and I would encourage everyone to see it. Did you like All Is Lost? I wasn't really swept away with it. (laughs) No. Okay. Um, I kind of got bored, maybe seasick. I mean... It's definitely not as fast-paced as something like Gravity. Okay, but Gravity was like 
that concept turned to 11. Like, there was always a crisis every three minutes. Um, I do, I would would say that the pacing in All Is Lost is better. It's just, it kind of lulled me to sleep. See, while I think Gravity is a a pretty great movie, and it's, it's a technical masterpiece, I think that when it comes to just that concept of being alone somewhere, um, in the middle of nowhere and trying to survive. I think All is Lost is the, is the one that kind of turns that up to 11. All right. Uh, but yeah, they're both really interesting takes on, on that yes. concept. Alone, all alone. I, I mean, if only George Clooney had been around to help out Robert Redford. <laughs> Improvement. <laughs> That's how you fix that movie. <laughs> yeah, they have a bromance together trying to survive. And- Can you just, and just, you know, George Clooney from like, uh, what is the movie? Uh, a Perfect Storm. There we go. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Survives. Actually ends up on his ship. It's all good. All right. What's your number nine, Monica? My number nine is Drug War from Johnny Toe. I was really impressed with this. It's also um, probably my best action film that we'll mention in the next part as well. Um, I thought it was so well choreographed, acted, edited, it had me on the edge of my seat to use that cliche the entire time. Um, I I was blown away by it. I'll use all my Peter Travers words here. All right, Drug War. Yeah, another. Uh, have you seen it? I have seen it. So it's, it's another film from uh, Johnny Toe, who is when it comes to Hong Kong crime films, Johnny Toe is pretty much king at this point. Yeah. It's all about the escalation of the drug war. And I like that a friend of mine had pointed out that there's also an issue with Johnny Toe has to deal with now politically because he can't really make the cops bad guys. But you see that the cop bends the law sometimes in order to get, you know, the bad guys. Um, So it's an interesting concept or at least something that he has to deal with now. Well, I have more to say about drug war, but I'm not going to say it until we get to part two. Save it. All right. All right. My number nine is a is a, a film. It's a comedy. My second favorite comedy of the year. It's it's one of those movies. I was I hesitated a lot before putting it on this list, and then ultimately ultimately I decided, you know what, this movie needs more attention. So I'm going to be sure to put it on here and, and mention it. It's a movie called It's a Disaster. Have you seen this movie, Monica? I have not. It's directed no. by Todd Berger. It's another comedy about the end of the world. It seems like we got three or four of those this year. Yeah, right. It's probably the one that the fewest amount of people have seen. I believe it just got a a small, limited theatrical release and then went to uh, video on demand. It's on Netflix, I think. It's basically just a a low-budget comedy about uh, four couples who gather together for brunch. And as the, uh, the afternoon progresses, basically the world kind of starts to end. And we're never really told what's going on. Is, is it the biblical apocalypse? Has like a meteor hit the earth? Is there some sort of nuclear power plant explosion? All they know is that something awful is happening and they can't go outside because they could die. It's just a really, really funny movie. What really puts this film over the top for me, though, is the ending, which has an incredibly dark twist I did not see coming. And I cannot believe that this movie had the balls to do it. And it feels like the kind of move a much more serious art house film director would make. 
Like if uh, like I'm thinking of Melancholia by Lars von Trier. You yep. know, the, the, this movie just takes a twist in its final moments that had me both gasping and also laughing hysterically at the same time uh, because it's so darkly funny. So I would highly encourage people to check out It's a Disaster. Of the four films about the the four comedies about the uh, end of the world that came out this year, it is the second best. All right. What's your number eight? My number eight is the quirky and then soul of Francis Ha. I loved it. I think it captures a sort of moment in our generational time. I kind of call it a sort of Manhattan for millennials. Um, it's about Frances Ha. She's struggling in the big city, trying to make her mark in the modern dance world. But she's finding that her future isn't going the way that she had planned it. And so she's kind of in a panic in the middle of an identity crisis when her best friend leaves and moves out to move in with her boyfriend. It's a great story between female friendship and getting your identity in this weird economic time that we're in. Uh, uh, Greta Gerwig is the star, and she also co-wrote it with director Noah Baumbach. So I like it. David Bowie music. It's in black and white, and it has some dancing. (laughs) I really liked this movie as well. It didn't make my top ten probably because I I saw it uh, back in 2012 at a film festival and and never got a chance to revisit it. But I remember really, really enjoying it uh, when I saw it. Uh, And just in terms of capturing the millennial experience. I think this is definitely one of the better explorations of that. And as you mentioned, the black and white photography is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, Greta Gerwig gives a really amazing performance. I wish that she was getting more awards consideration, actually, because she's, she's really quite good in this movie. Uh, and it's just, it's just a really poignant, uh, very sweet film. I agree with you. Yes, we agree. Let the record show we agreed. <laughs> it didn't make my top ten though, so do we really agree? You know, we can't we can't play that game. I gotta I gotta take what I could get, man. My number eight, I might have mentioned this movie last year on our best of twenty twelve episode. I can't remember because I first saw this film I think two years ago. Oh gosh. At the Toronto Film Festival. Uh-huh. And then it disappeared. And I kept wondering, what happened? Where did this movie go? It finally got a video-on-demand release this past fall. It's a movie called The Invader. Okay. It's uh, directed by uh, Nicholas Provost, who, kind of like Steve McQueen, got his start, I believe, doing video art installations mm-hmm. and, and short films. And I believe The Invader actually started as a short film. And it's about an African immigrant who washes up on the beach of Belgium. And it's about how he's uh, an illegal immigrant and he's trying to find a job and he has no money. And he kind of forms this really twisted relationship with a really wealthy white businesswoman and kind of cons his way into her life. And it's about this torrid affair that they have and the falling out. And it's just a really, really interesting look at gender and race and immigration. And it's one of the most beautifully photographed debut films I think I've ever seen. It's absolutely gorgeous. I I 
I cannot wait for Nicholas Provost to make another movie. If you're listening to this, Nicholas, do it soon, <laughs> please. I've been waiting two years. Make something else, because this is absolutely uh, spellbinding and mesmerizing, and I would highly encourage everyone uh, to check it out. Kickstart that. Yes. <laughs> what is your number seven? My number seven is something I sort of raved about uh, last week, and it is her. The Spike Jones directed Joaquin Phoenix starring and Scarlett Johansson co-starring movie about a man who falls in love with his operating system. I thought it was well shot. I thought the acting was really touching, and I think it plays on a cute concept of what if we fall in love with our our uh, systems. So I haven't told you this, Monica, but I've got a new girlfriend. Her name's Siri. Oh yeah. We we go great together. Pretty steady. Yes. It's really great. She tells me the best places to eat. She's just really opening up my world. Yeah, I don't think I'm ready for that just yet. (laughs) (laughs) It's a cute idea. I don't know if I buy it just yet. (laughs) I know technology hasn't quite gotten there yet. This movie has been getting some awards buzz, uh, and it sounds like you definitely think that it's deserved. I am at peace with the recognition that it is getting, yes. I kind of think it is deserved. I think it's certainly one of the more interesting films that came out this year. Okay, well, I will be uh, talking about her a little bit later on in part two, so we we can discuss it more then. I wonder which category you'll put it in. You'll have to wait and see. My number seven film is another Belgian film. It's called The Broken Circle Breakdown, which I believe just got a limited release uh, this past year, mm-hmm. and hopefully it'll be expanding or showing showing up on DVD or streaming services pretty soon. This movie is absolutely I- incredible. It's directed by Felix Van Groningen, and it is about a couple of folk singers who fall in love, uh, have a baby, and it's about what happens when their daughter gets uh, ill terminally ill um, and how they cope with it and you're probably thinking oh that sounds really depressing and I've seen movies like this before yeah you've seen movies like this before but the broken circle breakdown does something a little bit different I think it, it goes through the main steps that you would expect that story to take within the first hour and then there's a whole other hour of stuff left <laughs> to happen, and I don't want to want to spoil it. Oh. But it's uh, it's actually really, really moving, really touching. It delves into a lot of issues about how people deal with uh, with loss, and it's about uh, how people might turn to religion in some circumstances, or at the same time they might cling to their atheism, and how their whole worldview can affect their relationships and vice versa. Uh, it's it's really fantastic. And the music is absolutely great. Uh, if you've seen Inside Lewin Davis and you like that film's treatment of folk music, definitely check out The Broken Circle Breakdown, which has equally fantastic music. I, I want the soundtrack right now. I actually missed it when it was in limited release because it was one of those, hey, it's going to be here for six days and you'll never hear of it again. <laughs> Um, so I definitely want to track that down. Well, now you've heard of it, and now you know it's good and worth seeing. All right, what's your number six? My number six is Gimme the Loot. It's from first-time director Adam Leon, and it follows the story of two best friends who are struggling artists who plot a sort of elaborate 
graffiti tag of the New York Mets iconic inflatable apple to sort of stake their claim in the crowded uh, street art game. So I think these are first-time actors. They're really impressive. I love the energy. Um, the shooting style is great. And the story is just, uh, I came out of that movie feeling so good, even though, you know, they encounter, of course, a lot of hardships and roadblocks along the way. It was still, wow, I just, I felt electrified after watching this film. This is another movie I saw around two years ago at, at a film festival. Uh, I believe it played at South by Southwest. Yeah, that's where I caught it. I, I caught it there. I have not had a chance to revisit it, but I remember liking it uh, a lot. And it swept the awards that year. It won both the um, Critics Awards and it won the Audience Awards. Right, and then for some reason, it just didn't seem to get distributed for a while, which... Yeah, they waited an entire year. I remember this because the new South by Southwest was just starting up when they released the film in March. And then it did a little bit of business and then kind of went into VOD. Right. It's it's a movie I remember liking and that I feel like I would probably like even more uh, on a second viewing. Well, it's wor- well worth the second viewing. All right. Well, my number six pick is a, is a movie. Monica, I know you have some, some, some issues with this film. I already feel it coming. I was expecting to have some issues with this film and was surprised that I did not. And and that is uh, the French film Blue is the Warmest Color, which won big at the Cannes Film Festival. Yes, it's that three-hour lesbian movie you've been hearing about. It follows uh, a young teenage girl as she experiences her first real relationship and she discovers her sexuality and it's about all those different stages she goes through uh, relating to that. And this movie just really blew me away. Uh, I, I felt like the three hours flew by. I could have stayed in Adele's world for another three hours, happily, just to see what happened to her. I was so caught up in, in her story. And the thing about this movie is that the, the way the director, whose, whose name I'm not going to bother to pronounce because I know I'm going to mispronounce it, the way he films it feels so natural and so much just like a slice of life. It just really captivated me and pulled me in. Yes, the sex scenes are very graphic, but at the same time, they didn't strike me as pornographic. They just struck me almost do- documentary-like. <laughs> no? You disagree? <laughs> that, that is the worst sex. It <laughs> is so uncomfortable. Oh my gosh. I would have to talk to some lesbians about how Let me just tell you, as a woman, just going straight into like sex with no warm-up, I'm kind of horrified. <laughs> like, ooh, I... Wait, is there any alcohol involved in this? At least something? Like, goodness. No, that's just pure passion and love, Monica. Yeah, okay. Um, That doesn't... Okay, that's a fantasy. And then the 17 different, uh, uh, like, positions that they put themselves through. This is sort of like Olympics. Well, okay, look. Look, there's been some controversy about what happened behind the scenes and how the director was very demanding and arguably... I'm not even going there. What I saw on screen... What I saw on screen was a lot of ass close-ups, pulling the camera down, cutting off the top of the head in order to get the ass on screen, and then just a lot of focusing on just, I felt like forced intimacy for me. Like that close-up that a lot of people really like, I just felt 
it wasn't earned. Like, I could have seen maybe something like it was a gradual thing, but no, we upped their nostrils from the first four minutes of the movie. So I just, I the more I thought about it, the more I felt out of love with it. Because I was kind of okay when I left the theater. I was really sort of skeezed out as I thought about it. I was like, ew, this is like some perverted uncle or like some perverted guy just like standing back and watching like girls. See, what it felt to me like, and I, I was actually expecting to feel the way the way you feel, Monica. I was expecting to feel like this is kind of voyeuristic and unnecessary and, and, and gratuitous. But I mean, yes, it's 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 voyeuristic, but it didn't feel like it was like the intent was to arouse. I think it, it didn't feel like pornography in that sense. It didn't feel like the director was showing you all of these close-ups of body parts to get the male audience really excited and like, oh, here's this hot lesbian sex. It it almost I I wanted to look away from the scene not because it kind of sketched me out, but because I felt like it was so intimate. I was just kind of like, I felt like this is a really intimate private moment between these two characters that I have no right to view in a weird way. It was, it was kind of like, this is, this is too intimate. I, I, if I'm going to look away, it's not because uh, it's, it's too voyeuristic or, or because it's this fantasy male gaze or anything like that. It's because I just shouldn't be here in the room. That's another thing, too. If she's, like, a newcomer to lesbian sex, how is she already going through so many positions? Like, where's that awkwardness of finding out about the mechanics? Because, obviously, her partner is much more experienced in that regard. I was was willing to go with it. All right, no. I didn't feel it. Like, okay, I like... The relationship aspect of it. I'm not going to throw it overboard completely and say, this is the worst film ever. It's not on my list there. Because I lo- the actual relation part, relationship part was very interesting. Right. I mean, me. there's what? There's what? 15 minutes of sex? So even without yes, the sex, but there's two hours of... Portions of filming, acting aside, that then led me to kind of figure out like, all right, he's just looking at what he wants to see and then is forcing me to look at this. And make call it intimate. Like he has a thing with mouths or whatever, because there's a lot of close-ups of them eating. Oh, that's cute. Thanks, guy. She also can't chew with her mouth like closed. <laughs> it totally works for me, and I think that the uh, the lead actress Adele Exarchopoulos, absolutely stunning. This girl, this this wonderfully talented young woman, deserves first timer too. Yes, she deserves serious accolades. For her performance here, it is absolutely remarkable. One of the most touching and and, and moving and uh, naturalistic performances I, I've seen in quite some time. She absolutely blew me away. I think the movie succeeds as well as it does largely because of her performance. All right, I'm not gonna argue with you there. <laughs> okay, okay, we can at least agree that she's a great actress. Yes, I can agree that the two leads are both pretty great in their roles. I think the writing had some issue and the shooting. There's my beef. All right. Well, what is your number five pick? My number five is another relationship kind of movie. It's uh, Spectacular Now, which has to do with the coming of age story of a young man who's also struggling with alcoholism, a broken family, and a breakup. And he doesn't know where he wants his life to go. He's just kind of aiming around. And then he finds this girl and then a cute relationship forms. 
And I know I made it just sound the most cliche thing ever, but <laughs> it's actually really, really sweet. And I, and at times awkward, actually, and somewhat and pretty grounded. So I was really impressed with it. I will say this about The Spectacular Now. It made me not hate Miles Teller. Yes, that too. That too. Also, Shailene Woodley, just, I'm in love with her now. I will see anything that Shailene Woodley is in yes, because of this movie. Yeah, between that and The Descendants, I've finally gotten over the fact that I was forced to watch The Secret Life of the American Teenager. See, I had totally forgotten that she was in The Descendants. Ah, well, that was the first time that I was like, oh, she can actually really act. Okay, cool. I won't hate her anymore. And then I saw this and I was really impressed. And then, yeah, this movie also won me over with Miles Teller because I had written him off as a sort of like douchebag actor. So great. Never had to watch him seriously or whatnot. And then comes out with this great, sincere performance and ate my words. I'm just going to go ahead and say this, Monica. I will see Divergent because Shailene Woodley is in it. <laughs> we will probably end up discussing that on Cinema Fix. Probs. <laughs> because I will say we're seeing it. Shailene Woodley's in it. <laughs> Great. Good to know. I'll put it on my schedule. <laughs> All right. My number five film is uh, the new movie from Iranian filmmaker Asghar Farhadi. It's a movie called The Past. And uh, people might remember his previous film, A Separation, which won a lot of awards when it came out, uh, I believe, two years ago. The Past is another kind of twisted relationship drama about um, a man who... It it, it all takes place in France, actually. It's about a man who who comes home from uh, Iran to finalize uh, a divorce and meets his wife's new lover... And she's had previous marriages, and there are kids from various points uh, in, in all of her different relationships. And there are secrets that are uncovered, and it seems like one twist after another. And this movie t- just went in places I was not expecting. It's 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 very just kind of maze-like in terms of how it reveals one twist uh, after another, and you're just kind of like, oh, well, maybe this is what's going on. Oh, no, actually, this is what's going on. Well, now I don't know what's going on. <laughs> um, and it, it's it's actually just a really, really incredibly written film uh, that's just about how people construct narratives for themselves and how they view the the past and how you can see the past, you can remember it, but you can never quite understand it, and you can never quite figure out what exactly was going on in the past. You might think you know, but at the end of the day, you can never really be sure. And I really, really loved this film. I think it's just as good as A Separation, if not better. Did you like this film, Monica? I did. I was really impressed with it. Uh, however, I think because it's so maze-like, it sometimes took me out of the personal conflict because it just seemed like there were too many balls in the air. Um, so it was like diverting my emotional energy. It kind of felt like. Um, whereas in a separation, it's very much focused on the central characters. Right. I can totally see on that. the husband and the wife. Yeah. So, you know, I'm devastated by the end of it, no matter what the outcome is. And here... I wasn't quite sure if I should feel bad or good for any one character because everyone's just 
it's a lot of players that then get their feelings hurt. So I feel like it ends on a much more ambiguous note than a separation, and I think that's that's to its benefit. Um, I agree with you to a certain extent. I think at times, especially in the middle, it can feel a little bit too constructed. Like you're very yeah. aware that Asghar Farhadi has written a script and he's kind of behind the scenes pulling all the strings. Mm-hmm. But if you can get over that, I think it's absolutely a, a, a spellbinding mystery to a certain extent. Oh, certainly. And the twist it takes, quite amazing. Yes. All right, what's your number four film? My number four film, and don't groan, Andrew, is 12 Years a Slave. Yes, I'm a big fan of Steve McQueen. I think this was an exquisite work. Um, it was very emotional. It was well acted, well shot. It's an amazing story of uh, Solomon Northup as he's um, played by, amazingly played by Chiwetel Ejiofor as Northup was um, kidnapped and pressed into slavery for 12 years. Could not shake this movie off when I left the theater. This is a good movie. That's all I'm going to say now, is that it is a good film. Okay. <laughs> I believe it's not on your top ten, sir. It is not on my top ten, but it is a good film. I believe uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor fully deserves the Oscar for his performance. He's, he's absolutely incredible in this movie. It's definitely the most brutal depiction of slavery ever put to film, for better or worse. And I think it does a really good job of portraying slavery and racism as a state of mind and as an institution that kind of seeped into every aspect of American life at that time. So yeah, good film. Alrighty. What's your number four? My number four is a film you mentioned a little bit earlier in your honorable mentions. It is Richard Rinklater's film, Before Midnight. Uh, It's the third film chronicling the relationship between Jesse and Celine, played by Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, uh, respectively. And it's, it's, it's the darkest of the three films so far in many ways, but it's also incredibly honest about relationships and how hard they can be, and especially over long periods of time, and how... As with many aspects of life, the frustration that can come with not having things turn out quite the way you would like them to, and learning to deal with that. I love this movie. I love all three films. My my one complaint about Before Midnight is I think the ending is a little bit too neat if they are going to continue to make more films, which I hope they will. I hope they make another uh, movie every nine years until everyone dies, basically. <laughs> It'll be the different Seven Up series. <laughs> yeah, I hope it's like the Up series, where every couple of years they just come out with a new one. If they do make more films, I think the ending's a little bit too neat. If this is actually the last of the series, and it's, this is just meant to be a trilogy, I think the ending works fine. Uh, and, it, and it's rather appropriate and kind of beautiful. But yeah, I love this film. The performances are incredible. The writing's spectacular. If you love the other movies in the series, you'll probably love this one just as much, though I know a few people who who are a little bit iffy on it for various reasons. Uh, It's a movie I think you can return to multiple times and, and get new things out of. 
even in different stages of your life because you relate to the characters a little bit differently. Right. Like I, I, th- I think it's a really good movie to watch with other people and to discuss because I have found that some people end up sympathizing more with Celine in the film while other people end up sympathizing more with Jesse. Ooh, that's interesting. Maybe because I just know a lot of people that are Team Celine, so... <laughs> right, right. And it's really interesting to talk about that with people and, and, and kind of look back at the film and see maybe, you know, is the person that I think is at fault really at fault? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the great strengths of the film is that there are things that you love about both characters and yet there's also things that they do that I think make you want to throw up your hands and go, come on, really? <laughs> You're going to act like that? So yeah, Before Midnight is, is really, really great. What's your number three? Oh, that totally different note. Uh, my number three is Harmony Corinne's Spring Breakers. Follows these four girls and their search for the ultimate spring break and finds a sort of, it defines a more seedy underbelly to all of their activities. Um, I think it was amazing in its cinematography, editing, and story. James Franco's best role ever possibly as the wannabe gangster alien i think it has a lot of subtext to get to dive into in terms of appropriation and consumerism i is actually uh, i'll talk about it in the second part as well it's in one of my many categories because it's not what i was expecting when i went into the theater i was kind of getting ready to you know gear up for a feminist rant against this and then it ended up being a really big argument for a lot of the things that i sort of believe so I was impressed. Spring break. Forever. Spring break forever. On repeat. I got shorts in every color. I love this movie, Monica. I, I, I fully agree with you. It's absolutely mesmerizing and hypnotic. I, I love everything from yes. the color palette to the editing to the performances to its exploration of youth culture and and what it seems to be saying about the next generation it is both a celebration of debauchery and a critique of it it's one of the rare movies that manages to have its cake and eat it too and i i absolutely adore this film is it on your list it is on my list it is my number one actually yes spoilers it's my number one (laughs) i i love this movie so much. <laughs> I think James Franco deserves awards consideration. I'm really disappointed he did not receive an Oscar nomination for his film. I think that this is going to gather a cult following, and I would not be surprised if in 10, 15 years we are quoting lines from this film. I would hope so. It's so perfect for it. Right, right. And I, I, I think that Alien and James Franco's performance could really be uh, go down in, in history as one of uh, a really, really incredible, um, iconic performance. So yeah, I, I really, really love this movie. I can't wait to see it over and over and over again because I've seen I've I've already seen it multiple times, and I, I did notice new things every time I watched it. It's, it's really, really incredible filmmaking. So, what's your number? Three. My number three is a movie called What Maisie Knew. Which I still have to see. I believe you can watch it on Netflix. 
now. It's a little movie that kind of came and disappeared, and I'm really upset that more people aren't aren't talking about this film because I just watched it not too long ago, and it just blew me away. And I was like, why are people not talking about this film? This film stars an adorable child actress named Onata April as Maisie, who is, I believe, a, a four-year-old girl who lives with uh, her mother and father, Julianne Moore, and uh, Steve Coogan, and it's about their divorce and how Maisie processes it and about how she kind of gets shuffled back and forth between them, and then each of them finds new people that they would like to marry and, and spend the rest of their life with, and Maisie's kind of caught in the middle of all of this, and it's one of the most honest and moving portrayals of divorce I think I've ever seen on on film. It's told entirely from Maisie's perspective. Actually, most of the time, the camera is at Maisie's height. Wow. And it just does a, a really good job of getting you inside the head of this little girl and make you wonder, how is she taking all this? How, how, how does she feel about it? Is she confused? What does she want to happen? It's really haunting, but also very touching and, and moving at times. And I would highly recommend that people check it out. I, it's, it's one of those movies, I think, in a couple decades or whatever, when people look back over this period in history and, re, and, and they talk about uh, relationships and how our views of marriage were evolving and how the divorce rate was climbing, I think people will point back to this film and say that it does a pretty good job of just capturing what it feels like to live in this this era and to be part of that confusion. Well, I just put it on my watch list for Netflix so I can concur that it is out there. Good, good. Yes, watch this movie. If you're listening right now, go check out What Maisie Knew. It's a really, really wonderful film. All right. Coming down to the end, Monica, what is your number two? My number two is Wolf of Wall Street. I know, I know. It's problematic, but it's Martin Scorsese. It's Leonardo DiCaprio. It's an amazing supporting cast. It's a crazy story. And it's probably Scorsese at the height. Almost feels like Scorsese at 71 is at the height of his game. He makes a three-hour movie about excess that we haven't kind of, that we haven't seen the kind of since almost the 80s but is smart about it and sort of critiques the fact that, you know, we encourage this behavior, but it's actually really destructive and harmful and hurtful to the people around him. So I was just taken by this terrible person named Jordan Belfort, who Leo stars as, and all the antics and the drive for being a self-made man in Wall Street and uh, as a broker um, and his and how he forms his own company, and just the the climb all the way up through corruption, and then, you know, of course, the eventual fall from grace. So, crazy entertaining, but it is well, certainly a critique, I believe. I don't think there's any doubt that, that it's a critique. Uh, there is a lot of doubt out there. There is a lot of people who didn't get it, or who didn't read it like Yeah, up. exactly. If you watch this movie, and you think that it's glorifying this behavior, you don't get it, and I question your ability to read movies in a thoughtful way. And that may sound harsh, but I honestly, I do not understand how anyone could watch The Wolf of Wall Street and come away thinking that just because it's depicting bad behavior, it is endorsing bad behavior. Then, of course, you know, it's gonna, he's going to be the champion to a bunch of Wall Street, you know, yuppies and 
douchebags because that's what Gordon Gecko was, you know, those two decades ago, two, three decades now. Well, right. But that's another thing that's brilliant about the movie. Scorsese knows mm-hmm. that. He names his movie The Wolf of Wall Street after the Forbes article yeah. that is featured in the film that was a takedown of Jordan Belfort, but that actually inspired people to want to work for him. Mm-hmm. That is what this movie is about. It's about how... We totally love these people. Yeah. you. We look up to them. Right. You can critique the system and slam them and take them down a notch. But at the end of the day, we still want to be them. And that's the problem. Yeah. This this is the kind of movie, even though it did not make my top ten, Monica, I'm happy it's your number two. I would be happy if it was your number one. I think we need to be talking about this film. I think we need to be writing about it and discussing it and really, really talking about the issues that it's grappling with, uh, not just about uh, shady Wall Street bankers and how they do illegal deals and should be punished, but also about the American dream in general and that desire to want that and to enjoy that uh, in in its various forms, even in movies to a certain extent, and whether or not that's healthy. Uh, I think that's what we need to be talking about, and and I'm fully on board with this film. Uh, It's one, I think it's Scorsese's best film in in quite some time. See, I like Hugo last year, so I know he's on I feel like he's still got game. He's on a roll. Hugo was really good. Shutter Island I thought was excellent. Uh so yeah, the, the good for you Scorsese. He's he's still kicking. Seems like he's got a lot of movies left in him too. He's he's got a lot of energy, I feel like. Yes, I really hope so. All right. Well, my number 2 is the latest film from Edgar Wright, The World's End. It's my number one comedy of the year. Monica, you and I had nice. had a really fantastic discussion about it when we reviewed it uh, on Cinema Fix a few months ago. It's a, a, a movie about a group of friends getting together to complete the Golden Mile, uh, which is uh, it's in their old hometown. They're going to spend the evening going to a, a dozen pubs and having a pint at each pub and getting really, really drunk. And let's just say things don't go according to plan, and there are some sci-fi elements that come into play. This movie, it, it's the perfect encapsulation of, I think, all the ideas and themes that we saw Edgar Wright working with in his previous films, in, in Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and Scott Pilgrim. All of those ideas finally come in, in, in together here, and it's wonderful uh, he's operating on all cylinders. The, the the filmmaking is great. This is one of the best action movies of the year, oddly enough, which I was not expecting. But he has such an assured sense of where the camera should be and where to cut during action. It, it's, it's really thrilling. It's hilarious. Simon Pegg gives what I think is probably the best performance of his career. And I also think that like The Wolf of Wall Street, there's a lot of really radical ideas underneath this film. This is a movie critiquing technology, critiquing large corporations, critiquing religion to a certain extent. I think there's some really thought-provoking stuff going on in this film. I've seen it uh, two or three times now, and it's, it's, it's always hilarious. Uh, and always thought-provoking. So definitely check out The World's End if you have not seen it. It's wonderful. I can agree with that. It's probably comedy of the year. Yeah, it, it's it's absolutely hysterical. And it's proof a lot of the time the best comedies 
are also the smartest comedies. If they have something they're trying to say, if they have ideas and characters that they're trying to explore, that can in many ways help them be even funnier. Agreed. I guess we're on our number one picks, even though we kind of found out yours. <laughs> okay, you know my number one pick. All I'll say about my number one pick, which which was Spring Breakers, I forgot to mention before we started this list that I purposefully did not include any documentaries on my list, and I, I told you to do the same, and we're going to talk about documentaries more in part two. My my actual number one film of the year overall is a documentary, and I had about three or four <laughs> documentaries in my overall top ten, but we're not going to talk about those until part two. So I just want to make that clear that, yeah, Spring Breakers is my number one, but it's kind of not my number one. What's your number one narrative film, Monica? My number one narrative film would be Inside Lewin Davis, which apparently no one likes anymore. (laughs) (laughs) No, people like this film. Critics love this movie. Critics love this movie. I can't collectively speak for everyone. I can only speak for myself, but I thought it was a really morose portrait of the struggling artist so maybe that's why it appealed to all of us it's about this guy named lewin davis he's a struggling folk uh musician and he is trying to make it once again after his uh duo act fell apart and then we slowly find out why that happened later on in the movie um and he's just a mess he's kind of a jerk to people his former girl is also his best friend's girl and she hates him because he kind of got her knocked up and he loses a cat and it's just, he's a mess. But I think it's beautifully shot. I think it's wonderfully acted. Um, I still feel bad for the guy, even though he is as much of a jerk as he is. And of course, it's the Coen brothers, so it's not just a complete bleak portrait. It's There's a lot of dark humor in there as well. So I think it was the movie that stuck with me the most. And I don't even like folk music. I don't like folk music either, Monica, but the music in this movie is is so well done and so yeah. catchy and i can't i couldn't get the songs out of my heads yeah who knew i would be downloading well i have the album soundtrack now so there goes my i no longer like folk music stint yeah because <laughs> that please mr kennedy is just on repeat on repeat in my head <laughs> yeah this is a movie i definitely think i i need to revisit I, I didn't like it quite as much as you and a lot of other critics did on a first view. It's one of those movies I appreciate intellectually, but I wasn't quite able to, to get on board with it emotionally. Maybe repeat viewings will change that. I definitely think there's a lot of stuff to talk about in this film. Certainly is. And to a certain extent, I think, I think I, I've enjoyed the discussion more than I enjoyed watching the movie itself. But at the same time, I wouldn't, have any, I wouldn't be able to be part of that discussion unless I had seen the film. So that's that's to its credit. So yeah, I, I, I agree with you. It's a good movie. All right, we made it. Ten movies. And I think it took us an hour. <laughs> yeah, we, we managed to do it in an hour, which is what I, I, I had hoped we'd be able to uh, do it within an hour. So that's good. Good deal. Uh, I think that'll wrap it up for part one of our look back at the best and worst movies of 2013. In part two, we're going to be looking back at certain genres. We're going to be talking about the best action movies, the best comedies. We're going to be talking about foreign films and documentaries and and overrated movies and underrated movies and, and all sorts of stuff. Uh, we're trying to give you as complete a look back at 2013 overall and really capture a lot of the highlights. So be sure to stay tuned for that. 
All right. Well, we'd love to get your feedback on the show. You can email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail at 336-793-2509. Call and let us know what your top 10 films of 2013 were. We'd love to hear from you. Be sure to subscribe to us through iTunes and Stitcher. And if you liked this episode, please write us a review. That would really help us out a lot in terms of getting the word out about the program. You can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. And if you'd like, you can actually visit our affiliates page uh, and visit some of our partners. We are affiliated with Amazon. And if you use our website as the portal to get to Amazon, anything you buy there, we will get a small percentage of that. So you can buy something for yourself and you can help us out at the same time. So you can probably rent some of the films that we recently, uh, that we just talked about through Amazon. And you can watch the film and... That helps us out, too. So everyone wins. And uh, don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including uh, Let's Get Real, The Thin Place, and the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. cast, and our new show all about the HBO series True Detective, Detect This. Monica, where can people find you online? People can find me on Twitter and Tumblr at mcastimovies. That's M-C-A-S-T-I movies. They can also find my work reposted on the Boston Online Film Critics Association website, at bofca.com. You can find my writing at moviemezzanine.com and patheos.com on the blog Cinemeditations. And you can follow me on Twitter at writerandrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message. Let me know you're a listener. So we can keep talking about the best movies of 2013. All right, better wrap it up for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Monica Castillo. And have fun this year getting high on cinema. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!